Good morning, One City Church. It's a joy to be here. I bring it greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters at Grace Church. You all hold, uh, not just for me, but for all of us, a dear place in our hearts, and we give thanks for you always. Uh, Tammy, thanks for that introduction. I could say the same about you and Alec as well, um, being able to watch you faithfully serve the body of Christ and uh, follow where he's leading, uh, though that may be difficult uh, often. So this morning, uh, I invite you to join me. Uh, if you have your copy of the scriptures in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> we in Hebrews chapter 6. So as you, as you join me there, <laughs> I want to say this, as we're here this morning, my goal, this is a newer year, we're not uh, that far along yet, my goal this morning is not to uh, give you a pep talk for this new year, uh, my goal is not to uh, help you become your best self in 2021, uh, my goal is not to send you uh, good vibes, uh, I don't even know what that means, but I'm certainly... <laughs> Not going to do that this morning. Uh, my prayer has been, this is, so to be fair, this is a sermon I got to preach last week at our church, so uh, hopefully it'll be much better this week uh, for you all. My prayer for our church and for you all this morning is that God would smash the idols in our hearts and uproot them and tear them apart. Sound like fun? Let's... <laughs> Let's do that this morning. I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about hope this morning. Before we get into to that, I want to have us work with the same definition. So you know when I say the word hope, you know what I'm talking about. And the really simple definition of the word hope is to put your trust or confidence in someone or something. It's really a uh, brief, uh, simple definition. It's to put your confidence or trust in someone or something. So when I talk about hope this morning, that's what I'm talking about, what we put our hope and what we put our confidence and trust in. And the way that I want to set this up and frame this uh, is look at, before we get to the text, look at four what's been called source idols. And I have to confess, these ideas aren't my own. Uh, I think Tim Keller and David Pallison and Eric Geigers and men like them, uh, I don't know if they came up with these uh, or they just made them uh, more, uh, made us more aware of them in our day and age, but they have this idea of source and surface idols. Uh, and the source idols, they're basically, there are four uh, that you can break all the rest of our idolatry come from these four things. Or these are four places that we tend to falsely and wrongly put our hope. And uh, you get to see how our lives get all kinds of messed up and jammed up when we put our hope in these wrong places. Before we do that, uh, let me, you know, Tammy prayed and I want to do that as well. Join me in prayer. God, we are grateful this morning to gather together. We're grateful for this time and this space, and we're grateful for the body of Christ. I'm asking, Lord, that you would be hallowed in my life this morning, that you would be hallowed in our lives, that you would be magnified and glorified through our hearing of your word. Jesus, we're so grateful 
for you as being the foundation of our church. That you're the one on which we stand. You're the anchor for our souls. You're the only one that we can put our hope and trust in. And so I pray that by your spirit this morning, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are soft and fertile soil for the seed of your word to be planted. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, let's dive right into these uh, four places that we put our wrong hope. And with each one of these, uh, I've brought with me um, just some items to maybe help us visualize them. And I want to talk about these idols and then talk about how they tend to flesh themselves out in our lives. The first place that we wrongly put our hope, the first idol that we uh, worship is control. The idol of control. Uh, And this morning I have uh, my wedding band with me. I I use the silicone rings because uh, our, my wedding band is much too expensive, and I would lose it. Uh, and so, but think about relationships. This idol of control uh, tends to flesh itself out in our relationships. Uh, we were created for relationships. It's a good thing to have relationships. God uh, created us to have a relationship with him and to have relationship with one another. But when we have put our hope in control... Our ability to control those relationships, whether it be with a significant other or with parents or with friends or with strangers that you don't know, when our hope is in control and we worship people or relationships, that's when things start to go awry. Now, my wife uh, is a wonderful, wonderful wife. She's an excellent partner and helper to me, not just uh, not just in our marriage, but even in my ministry. Uh, I am a much better pastor with her than without her. Uh, but problems start to arise in our relationship and in our marriage when I try to control her. And when I, she doesn't act and think like I think she should or like I want her to, that's when things tend to get a little messy. And that's when the problems start to arise. Uh, and She, though being an excellent wife, excellent helper, makes a really crummy God. She will never meet my expectations, wrong expectations though they may be. She will never meet them. I can never control her like I want her to. And so when we have our hope in control and our ability to be able to control things, we will always end up frustrated, disappointed, and angry. You know this because you can't control the way that people drive on the road. Everybody else is a terrible driver, probably except for yourself. (laughs) Because you can't control that. Or our relationship to the world and strangers around us. When control is where we've put our hope and our ability to be able to control our lives, well, that's when we get frustrated and angry parents with your children. You lash out in anger, though as justified as you might think that is, lashing out in anger is because you can't control them like you want to control them. They don't behave like you want them to behave. And so when your response is anger and frustration, it's because you can't control them. And you lack control in that area of your lives, at least to some degree. Now, parents, I I was spanked as a kid, and uh, for better or for worse, you have that control. But 
That didn't mean I always listened to my parents. And so control can tend to ruin our lives. A word for single people here. If you're frustrated and disappointed and angry about where you are in your life right now, you thought, but gosh, I thought I had found somebody. I, I thought by now I, I know the person that I was going to spend, hopefully spend the rest of my life with. If you're angry and frustrated and disappointed right now, when you find someone, you'll be angry and frustrated and disappointed then. Because people were never meant to be where our hope is placed and we're never meant to be the ones that we worship. They were never meant to be where we find ourselves. And so the first false hope or first idol that we, that is the root of many others is control. Number two, uh, idol number two is power. And power tends to look green. Now, this isn't that much money. I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm not making that much money. But as a visual aid for you, power tends to flesh itself out in, in the form of money. I have to confess for myself, this is an issue for my own heart. Uh, when our bank account's good, when our bills are paid, and maybe even there's a little bit extra to set aside uh, for savings or rainy day or whatever the case may be, or towards more debt, um, I'm good. I've got peace, I've got joy then. But when an unexpected expense comes, you can ask my wife this, man, my, my blood pressure rises a couple hundred points. Uh, or when she wants to spend money that um, isn't necessarily in the budget, my stress level goes up. And the reason for that is power is my God. Power is my hope and where I'm trying to find Myself, And there is a certain truth to that reality. Money buys you things. It gives you a certain amount of influence. You buy food and shelter and things that you need. And so there is a certain amount of power that comes with money, naturally. But it's no wonder, though, that Jesus himself, the thing that he warned us against the most in the Gospels, the thing that he talked about the most, was being wary of and warning against the worship of money. He said, you cannot serve money and me at the same time. You will either be ruled by it or you'll be ruled by me. There is no in-between. Now, I should mention, with all of these false places we put our hope, none of them are inherently bad. But what happens, money in itself is not inherently bad. It's nice to be able to pay my bills. Uh, it's nice to be able to put food on the table. But it's when we worship it, when power is our God, when power is the place that we put our hope, you'll never have peace and joy. But when power is the place that you put your hope, money will become your master. It is inevitable because it says, you start to say to yourself, if I could just get a little bit more, then I'll be happy. If I could just have just a little more then I'll be content. Man, if I could just pay off that debt, then I'll be happy and things will be good. If I, could, if I could just pay that bill, then I'll be happy and good. But the reality is, when money or power is your hope, you'll never have enough of it and you'll never actually have joy and peace. So that's number two. Number three is approval. Approval is the false place that we 
uh, put our hope. And I have with, you, with me this morning, this is my high school diploma. You can get these online, but this is actually mine. It's got my name on it. It's officially signed and documented from South Adams High School. And this is, uh, Tammy had mentioned that I went to LBC. This is, this is a little bit more fancy. This is my college diploma, right? And so we, we put our hope in the approval of others. We love it. For kids uh, in school, it's your GPA, your grades, it's the trophies that you win, the awards that you get, the societies that you're a part of, the extracurricular activities that you join and involve yourself, and we love, love when we do well and we get recognized for it. As we get older, become adults, it becomes our degrees. What letters are behind my name? It becomes our position at work. It becomes all these things that we want to cling to and find the approval of others, and we want people to notice us and to recognize us. And so approval comes in the form of success. Which, by the way, this is a side note for free. Uh, We equate success with being really busy. right? We wear that like a badge of honor. And we say, I'm really, really busy. And, you know, oh, they must be successful. They must work really, really hard. The millionaires, the billionaires, the CEOs of companies, they were really busy people, and so they're successful. And so we tend to applaud that. And, and, but can I just <laughs> say from a personal uh, perspective, if, if I know you and I'm in conversation with you a lot and I ask you how you're doing and your response is consistently, I'm really, really busy and just feel exhausted, I have no envy of your life whatsoever. <laughs> Like, there's no part of me that wants to live a life that's constantly busy and I'm always overwhelmed because that's not the life that God has called us to, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are successful. That's for free. Back to the point. Success, when it comes to our approval and seeking the approval of others, think about, to me, the worst people, the worst celebrities to be fans of and, and to support are those that have, maybe they're the top athlete in their field, they're the best musician, or they're the best at whatever they do, and they're just really terrible people. I don't care what kind of accolades they have, I don't care how good they are, or good they think they are, not that it matters, they don't have my approval. <laughs> not that they really care, or maybe they do, and that would be disappointing to them. But the thing about fighting for the approval of others is that you'll never be good enough. You'll never have enough awards. You'll never be the best. And it will never be enough because you'll always want more. Parents, I wonder how often you tell your kids that you love them because they're yours. I wonder how often they hear from you. It's not about the grades. We want you to do your best. Certainly do your best. It's not about the grades. It's not about that you're the best at whatever you do. I love you because you're mine. Or vice versa, parents, kids. How, how often do you say that to your parents or your friends or family? How often do you tell them it's not about the things that you do? I love you anyway. I mean, this is what our Heavenly Father says to us. I love you because I created you. I love you because you're mine. The only approval that you and I get with God anyway is not based off of the good things we do, 
but the good things Christ did and what he did for us. It's the only way to gain true approval and true righteousness and justice before God is through Christ anyway. And so it does us no good to try to even earn God's approval because we'll never do enough good works to do that. Imagine one day you're going to stand before God. And this is, I didn't make this up. This isn't how I feel about it. You will stand before God one day. Imagine he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you start listening up. Well, I helped this old lady across the street. I went to church as often as I could. I even read my Bible outside of Sunday because I was a super. Like, imagine you start listing all those things off. And we know how that plays out. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the people that come before him and cry out, Lord, Lord, we did all these miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. And he's going to say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Trying to earn the approval of men and earn the approval of God will never be good enough. So this false idol, this false place we put our hope and approval will never be enough. And then number four, comfort. Comfort. You and I have at our disposal a computer that's more powerful than the ones that sent the rockets to the moon. At our fingertips, we've got access to all the information in the world. We can order food from this. We can order uh, furniture. You can order a mattress. You can order all sorts of things, and you never have to leave your home. We live in a, in a world, in a society that's completely built around this idea of convenience. And comfort fleshes itself out in that, right? We want to be comfortable. We long for comfort. And we long for convenience. That's one way that you see this idol of convenience flesh itself out. And there's another way. There's another way that it does this. And I could have actually put this way maybe in all of these categories, but I put it in this one for a specific reason, in the government, in our rulers and authorities. I don't care where you stand politically. I don't care if you're left-leaning, right-leaning, somewhere in the middle, or you hate it all, whatever the case may be, putting your hope in thrones of men will always let you down. You will always be disappointed. We're not going to get another president that's just magically going to fix all the brokenness in our nation. You will be let down. And here's why I put this one in this specific category. Something I hear from Christians a lot is that we're really concerned with our freedom and liberty. I'm not saying those are things we shouldn't be concerned with, but here's the reality. If you don't use your freedom and liberty to let the world know about the real freedom that comes from following Jesus, as far as I'm concerned, I'm speaking to Christians right now. I don't know all you right now. I don't know if you know, all know Jesus. But if you're a follower of Christ or would say you are, and you don't use the freedom and liberty that you and I enjoy in this country to tell other people about the real freedom, which, by the way, when the Bible talks about freedom in Christ, it has very little to do with our political alliances and our abilities that we have. It has everything to do with being set free from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death. It's not talking about precious political power or the ability to gather, do, say what we want. 
if you don't use that freedom to tell others about that good news in Jesus, your freedom and liberty is worthless as far as I'm concerned, as far as God's word is concerned. If you only look like a Christian one day a week, your freedom and liberty is worthless. If, if you think that Sunday mornings are for you and what you get out of it, your freedom and liberty is useless as far as I'm concerned. And so ultimately then, if you're fighting for freedom and liberty and you don't actually take advantage of it and leverage that for the sake of the gospel, you're not interested in freedom and liberty. You're interested in keeping your comfort and convenience. That's why I put it in this category because I think it fleshes itself out in that way. But putting your hope in comfort is like trying to drink water with a fork. You might get a few drops on the prongs, but it'll never be enough, and you'll, it'll make you selfish, and you'll, you won't have anything to share with others. So these are the four ways, four idols, and you're wondering, that was the introduction. You are correct, it was. <laughs> but these four idols, control, power, approval, and comfort. Friends, this morning I want us to be reminded there is one place There's one person that we can put our trust and confidence in and never be let down. Our hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people who swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews in this particular section is reminding believers of a promise, a promise that he made to Abraham, that same promise, by the way, a virtue of you and I in Christ, putting our faith and trust in Christ, is made to us because we are descendants of Abraham. So he's reminding the descendants of Abraham of the promise that he made to God, and he's intentionally reminding us and highlighting, he said, God made this promise, he made this oath, and he swore by no higher authority than himself, because there isn't one. There's no organization, there's no other person, there's nothing that God could appeal to, or you and I could appeal to, that is a higher authority than God himself. And so the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that this oath, this promise, is made by the absolute highest authority that is known to existence. And so then in verses 16 and 18, it says he made this promise by two unchangeable things. Now Al Mohler 
uh, in a commentary series called Christ-Centered Exposition. If you're looking for something to aid you in your own study of God's word, highly recommend this series of commentaries, uh, Christ-Centered Exposition, Exalting Jesus, in this case, in Hebrews. Uh, Al Mohler makes this statement. He says, God is making this promise, this oath, by his irrevocable purpose and word and the oath that he declared publicly to Abraham. So God would cease to be God if God could lie. He wouldn't be God any longer if he could lie. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to know, wants his readers to know, look, God has made a promise. It's a, it's a sure promise by the highest authority that exists, and we can trust it because God doesn't lie. He cannot lie. And so he's made the promise and he's said it to you publicly. This isn't a private thing that God just kind of kept to himself. He made it known, and because he cannot lie, he will not break his promise. He will not break his oath. And then the promise, verses 19 to 20. The promise is that we have one who has gone before. If you're not aware of your uh, Hebrew Old Testament history. Let me, let me tell you why that's so significant. Uh, the way that the Levitical priesthood, the Levites in, in the Israelites, right? The Levites were the one who would make the sacrifices, right? They were that special set-apart people. And there was the high priest. The high priest, one time a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, depending on what stage of Israel's history you're in, He would go into that one time a year, make one sacrifice for the sins of the people. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us, we have one who has entered in for us. This is the anchor of our soul. This is the encouragement for us. This is unchangeable. Our hope is not bound up in ourselves, it's not bound up in other people, it's not bound up in our circumstances, it's not bound up in our performance, it's not bound up in the powers that be, it's bound up in the perfect, crucified, risen God-man. Our hope is bound up in the triune God of the universe. It's bound up in Christ Jesus, the one who has gone before us. Oh, that we would get this and work it into our hearts and our minds and deep into our guts. I want you to hear some of the ways that God talks about in his word how we should hope and what our hope should look like and what we are hoping in. Psalm 71, 5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, for my youth. Proverbs 23, 18. Surely there is a future and a hope, and our hope will not be cut off. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is part of the text that we read this morning, Revelation 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. What's so incredible and what's so amazing about this promise and Jesus being the one who has gone before is that you and I have no business going into the holy places of God. You and I are strangers to God, aliens, unclean, enemies of the cross, and yet, because Christ came as a baby, died on the cross in our place, and rose again from the grave, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls that you and I, at all time, not just once a year, at a special set time, at all times, enter into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, have a right relationship with him forever. What's more is it's unchanging. It's a sure promise. It's something that we can actually really put our trust and confidence in and never be disappointed and never be let down and never come up short, and never lack joy, and never lack peace. I mean, do we understand your joy, right, your peace is intrinsically tied to whatever you put your hope in. So if you put your hope in something that isn't Jesus, and you lack joy, and you lack peace, you know why. And here's, here's what we tend to do in the West. There's a spectrum that we will be on, when it comes to realities like this promise. Be one of two ends of the spectrum. There's the really intellectual part of us where if something's a fact or something's reality, we can acknowledge it and say, okay, yeah, I, I agree, and we'll amen with that. You, you can hear realities like this. Oh, yeah, absolutely, that's true. I agree with that. But it only stays in the realm of theory and thought and a nice idea does nothing to change the way that we live our lives. Or we come over to the other end of the spectrum of experience. We say, if I don't feel it, if I don't experience the way that I think I should, then I can't walk in it. But the reality for us as believers is much different. No matter how much we comprehend a reality and how much we agree with it or how much we experience it like we think we should, when there's a reality that God's word tells us about and we put our faith and trust in Jesus and there are realities of promises that are made to us as like a sure and steadfast anchor in a world that is a storm and constantly changing and chaotic and, and lacking peace and there's anger and hatred all around us in that storm of this thing we call life, there's an anchor for our soul. What we do when we see these realities, are reminded of these realities, we walk in them. We say, no matter what life circumstances I find myself in, I'm gonna walk in it. It's hard to believe, but I'm gonna walk in it. Now, how much I comprehend that that's true or not, I can't grasp, I don't get. I, listen, I don't get how God came in the form of a baby. That doesn't make sense to me. But it's true. It's the reality. It's a reality without which you and I have no hope. 
I don't get how I can stand before a holy God and he will look at me and say, clean. If you knew my mind, if you knew my life like I do, but it's true. I can walk in it. If you're listening this morning or you're here with us, presently, like I said, I don't know all of you. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then maybe you've gotten distracted, you've gotten run off the course of the path a little bit. You need to come back. Maybe you're here and you've never actually done that. And I suggest to you that if you've not put your faith in Jesus, you have no hope. You have no reason to have hope. You can make all the New Year's resolutions you want. You can put in all the work that you want. You can have all the money that you want, all the success that you want. You can try and convince yourself that a new leader of this country is going to fix everything. If you want, you will always be let down and have no reason for hope. Come to Christ. A few verses later, the writer of Hebrews tells, I love, this is one of my favorite passages in this entire book. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. If you've gotten off the path and you're in despair, you find yourself getting caught up in all the craziness of this world, he loves when you come back to him. He always lives to make intercession for you. He didn't just enter into the holy places, make the sacrifice, tear down the veil that existed between us and God. He currently, right now, at all times, lives to make intercession for us and loves to do it. He loves when sinners who we thought were had no chance and no hope come to him in repentance. So what do we do? You fill your minds with Christ. Do what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Like you ain't the first ones to walk this path. You're not the first one. Like we think in our minds, our, our American-centric minds, we're the first ones to face the chaos that we're facing right now. We think we're the first ones to witness the downfall of an entire nation. You're not the first ones to go. We're the first Christians to take some heat for following Jesus. Like, come on. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before. And what's more, you have a hope. You have a Savior who suffered in your place for the joy set before him, endured the cross. You haven't even began to suffer to the point of bloodshed. So keep going. Fill your minds with him. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Remind yourselves again and again of who Jesus is, what he's promised, and what he will continue to do. This upcoming year, you're going to fail. You're going to face trials of various kinds. Things are going to be inconvenient. But in all of that, we can be full of great joy. If if we will put our hope in Christ and spend every moment putting our confidence and trust in him. Fill your mind with Christ. This, this book, every single page of it, is dripping with the promises of Christ. 
and the promises that God has made for you and the hope that we have no matter what our personal lives or the world around us is like. Treasure Christ in your hearts and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. That's what this world needs more of. It doesn't need more of your political opinions. It doesn't need more of your despair. It doesn't need more of your complaining. It needs more of the hope of Christ. This isn't just, I'm not saying this as a dismissive statement. Like putting your hope in Christ, that's just going to solve everything and make everything go away. No, what it means when we put our hope in Christ, we have a sure and steady anchor, a steadfast hope, a foundation on which everything else in our faith is built. Come to church, fellowship with the saints, encourage one another, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Listen, Alex is going to fail you. The elders are going to fail you. They're not going to be perfect. I fail our people at grace. Don't give up when things get hard and difficult. That's when we lean into the promises the most. And we encourage one another. This world is a dark, mean, and nasty place. It will eat you up and spit you back out if your hope is in anyone or anything other than Christ. But we have the author and finisher of our faith who has gone before us, who has suffered in our place, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever and sits on the throne, ruling and reigning in goodness and righteousness and justice and mercy. You and I have a hope. And our hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, so great.